writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. So what are you binging these days? It's a common question. Everyone is streaming shows and many of us are binging the best ones. Once we start the show, we have to complete it quickly. Just last week, I binged Ted Lasso season three, as well as 1883 and 1923. I could not stop. We binge shows for the same reasons we stay up into the wee morning hours to finish a book. It's about the storytelling, which includes pacing, action, and character development. All of this creates an immersive experience. Today, we are speaking with Kristen Iris, who helps memoirists and fiction writers develop their stories. One strategy she offers writers is this. Use the fundamentals of screenwriting to engage your reader from beginning to end so they won't bail and watch the next trending show on Netflix or Apple TV or Paramount. If you want to improve your scene writing skills, you won't want to miss this episode. You'll come away with principles to immediately help you improve your storytelling. Welcome, Kristen. We're so happy to have you back. The last time you were here, we talked a lot about writing memoirs, and then we just started to scratch the surface on some of your other brilliant insights on story writing. And so we're having you back today to focus on screen scene writing, excuse me, not screenwriting, though you have some thoughts on how the two relate. So let's just start simply. And what are the major components of scene writing? It's really just the same thing as a story. It has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's going to be characters involved. It could be, I mean, it could just be one character, but that character is going to be having some kind of an interaction or some kind of a friction with the world around them or another character, something like that. It needs to be something with, with movement. But the beginning, middle, and end is really important because if you think about that, it also has a component of changing. The character starts with, you know, like one way of thinking and behaving. Something happens, whether it's a thought that comes in or some other character or whatever interrupts their pattern of behavior and causes them to go in a different direction. But there should be a change from what the character was doing or thinking in the beginning of that scene to the end. And in that, in that way, it should be revealing something about their character or their nature, I should say, since I'm going to use the word character in two different ways, or about the nature or character of somebody else. And in that way, it's going to move the story forward. What are some of the misconceptions that young writers have or new writers about scenes and what is their first impulse in writing a scene and where does it go wrong? I think one of the challenges, I'll just kind of speak for myself as a practitioner. One of the things that was really hard for the first couple of years for me was to be able to actually say, this is a scene, this isn't a scene. 
because sometimes we, myself included back then, and sometimes I still will read something and I have to step back from it and go, ah, often people will say, oh, it's if a person comes into, let's say a room and then they leave the room, like this location bound. So it's a scene. If everything that happens within this location is a scene, not necessarily, or everything that happens within a certain time period is a scene. No, it has to do with the line of thinking and what that character, their goal at that moment is when there when there's a shift. That's why it's really helpful to think about screenwriting and to watch movies and go, oh, that was a scene, even though they switched locations and it might have even gone like to the next day. Oh, but I see they had this goal in mind. There was this little sequence of events and boom, and now they're on to the next thing. I think that I was reading an article by you and you talked about how some authors don't realize that there can be multiple scenes in the same setting because a new character can enter into the setting and suddenly there's a new new scene. And so a new scene isn't dependent upon location, which you already said, but I just want to reiterate that you can have the same location or the same setting, but a new scene. Can you give an example of that? Sometimes with writers, it's almost really helpful to point them to their own writing and to say, this is a scene because of these reasons. This is not a scene because of these reasons. So here's what I will say, since I can't come up with a specific example for you. Scenes are very important. But if you're in a situation where you're not sure, if it's the same setting and you've got something like that's kind of stacked together and you're like, is this a scene? Is this a scene? That's where I would say, don't sweat the small stuff. While it's very important to understand what scenes are and stack them strategically to move the story forward, it's less important as a writer because in filmmaking, it's done a little bit differently, right? There's a bunch of logistics that happen to happen per scene. But in writing, we don't have that. So as long as you have, you can say, this is how this particular scene or scenes that are sort of stacked together, this is how it moves the story forward. That's where don't get too into the weeds about it and too analytical about it. Because you can go, you can go too far with being analytical, coming from a very analytical person. <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting because I think a lot of new writers, they go to these classes or they read these books and they, you know, they say you have to have so many scenes per a chapter. And so they do get really beholden to these these formulas and they think if they don't hold fast to the formulas, then somehow their writing is going to fail. And I hear you saying something differently. So one of the things I tell my clients when I'm helping them structure their book from start to finish and also you know, when I've ghostwritten memoirs before and I'm starting out, what I say is, okay, the average novel is between 40 and 60 scenes. Let's just pick a number and let's just say, I love graph paper. So I just say, hey, let's, let's just choose the number 50 because it's easy to calculate. Let's just say you're going to have 50 scenes. Then you're going to choose these pivotal scenes in the book we, we're going to choose your opening scene, your closing scene, the inciting incident, some of these scenes along the way that are really important and what might be considered like tentpole scenes. Then we're going to figure out approximately how many percentage of the way through the book that needs to be. 
calculate how many scenes are going to be in between those. And then that just helps you start to conceptualize it. Once you're done conceptualizing it, you have a pretty good idea of the scenes that are going to go in the book. Now completely forget about that plan that you made because in at the end of the day, you're going to realize, oh, I didn't need that scene after all. Oh, you know what? I need to add three things in here because this leap from this to this doesn't make sense. And then at the end of the day, like, I don't, I don't add up when I'm done with the book, how many scenes I ended up with could be more, could be less. That's not the point. As long as everything is moving the story forward, that's the goal. So, so use, use all of those, that structure or a combination of things that people say, you know, save the cat is great, but for some people it's a little too, too many things all at once. Just different people have different ways of describing it. Take what makes sense to you, cobble it together, work with that, and then forget the rest. If the, if the book works, who cares how many scenes are in it? You mentioned earlier about this idea, asking yourself, is this a scene? Is this not a scene? As you evaluate writing, is there content that's not seen but needs to be in, in a book, like a memoir? Like, Is there a stitching together of scenes that must be done or can you end a scene and then use the, maybe the intro, uh, you know, the openings, you know, some dialogue or something to kind of stitch the two together. How do you stitch scenes together? So a scene is normally shown by having three asterisks or something, some kind of a, a graphic that separates scenes. But you'll also notice that there's often a line break. So it's not a different scene, it's a line break. And so that's also where if you are a student of books and you understand structure, not just from a writing perspective, but from how like book designers actually structure the book, then you can go, okay, this is not really part of the scene, but it needs to go in here. How do I deal with that? Oh, often it's just, oh, no big deal. We're just going to put a line break there. You're going to do this little thing, another line break, and then you can continue with the scene. It took me a long time to kind of figure that out too. I was like, oh, that's what that is. Readers are, it's almost like enculturation. You don't, nobody explains this to you. You just have a sense from reading so much that your brain subconsciously goes, like readers don't, They can't tell you what a scene is. They just know if it works or not. But that's a way to do it with those line breaks. And that's how flashbacks are often done too. So like in memoir, sometimes I'll have a client or I'll write a scene where the scene is going from a particular period of time, but then we'll break that scene in half and insert a flashback because it has to do with that scene. And it's it can be more interesting to tell a memoir in a non-linear way or a mostly linear way. And so that's what, that's another thing too. It's not a scene break because we want to make sure that we're indicating to the reader that these things are happening in this one scene, but we're going to insert this memory in there and the way that we do that so that the reader isn't disoriented if they're going from paragraph to paragraph is by putting a line break. And it's kind of like a period at the end of a sentence that gives you that, that pause So do you need, for example, after a scene, like if you look 
if you look at like the Old Testament, which is one big story, series of stories. So there'll be this scene, they're at, they're going somewhere, there's some war, and then there's some editorial comment. And then he left for Ephraim and uh, never looked back or something like that. Kind of like this editorializing. Is that a part of scenes? Is it separate from scenes? Is it only relevant to stories and from 4,000 years ago? Or do, is that also used today? Yeah, and I see that a lot in memoir. And that's where memoir is fun and it's also more challenging because there is a bit more editorializing. We expect that. If it goes too far, then it starts to be navel-gazing or preachy or something like that. But typically, there is more of that than in a novel. So what I say is, think about the book in scenes from a structure perspective and figuring out what the most important events in your life that that help the reader see your journey from, from one place or way of thinking to another. And then... We just look at it on the back end from an editing perspective and say, first of all, how much of this needs to be there and what what can we cut? Because we cut as much of that as we can. But if it needs to be there, that's where we decide, is this part of this scene? Is it part of the next scene? Is it its own little vignette? That's where some editorial discretion and author creativity can come into play. But if you, if you start with thinking, I'm going to write this in as immersive of a way as possible, like a novel, like a screenplay, then you leave room for yourself to do some of that editorializing, adding some commentary in there without boring the reader to death. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started to really tap into screenwriting as a model for structuring your, your books that you ghost wrote and also in helping other writers write? How, when did you make that connection and what was the most valuable part of that for you? You've already touched a little bit on it. I think I found a channel on YouTube called Film Courage and they have fantastic interviews of all kinds of people and they are incorporating more writers now, but back then was directors and actors and producers and screenwriters. And for the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, finally, somebody is actually talking about the craft of writing more than just saying, cut adverbs and use active voice and some of these other things. Because it's really, to, to write a compelling book to me is about pacing. If you can't get a reader from the beginning of the story to the end, it doesn't matter how beautiful your prose is. It doesn't matter if you know all of the technical aspects of it. You're not going to be able to create this immersive thing. And because the stakes are so high when you're filming, because it's so expensive to produce a movie, the stakes are very high. So they've just done a great job of articulating like this is, this is what works and this is why it works. And then you just start to take it and go, that makes sense to me. Eh, That doesn't apply to me and my practice. But, you know, in cobbling together this idea, because a lot of, as a developmental editor, seeing a lot of books where you're just like, there's no description of the, 
yes, I know what this character is thinking. I know their opinions about things. Show me something because I don't know what kind of a room you're in. I don't know how hot or cold it is. I don't know what season it is. I'm not grounded in time and place at all. So I feel like I'm kind of floating outside the story. So the screenwriting was a way to describe it to my clients of what I was trying to get them to do. And I said, show me, give me an immersive experience. <laughs> so that was really how I think I, I fell into it. Can you describe some of those principles then? Like, what were the things that you would share with your, your writers? Like, what were the top three or so tips from these insights that you had about screenwriting? I think the first was really the structure, because it is all about pacing. And so it's really difficult to tell somebody, ah, the pacing is slow. Can you speed up the pacing? Well, again, what does that mean? So to be able to say, okay, let's look at your book. And let's look at, you have 100,000 words in this book, and it's not until, and I'll, I do this when I do my developmental editing reports, I'll say, okay, the first real meaningful action or what I would identify as the inciting incident doesn't come until 37% of the way into this manuscript. That is way too long to ask your reader to hang in there with you before you give them something that they can grab onto and say, ah, this is where we're going with this book. So it's really just being able to, to use kind of math with writers and to say, it's about pacing. And that's what we focus on first is the pacing. What do we need to cut? What do we need to add in? And where do we strategically put those important moments so that you have that nice attention getter and you keep the, the reader moving from start to finish. So there, the main thing is pacing. Is there anything around character development that you learned from thinking of writing as screenwriting? Somebody said something that made total sense to me that action shows character. And often we're writing, writers will write about what a character thinks or believes or whatever, but don't tell me that. Don't tell, tell the reader that show us that by the choices that they make, the, the words that come out of their mouth, the things that they do, how they interact with people. You know, I want to see them maybe struggling with a relationship in the beginning and maybe saying things that, that they shouldn't have said if they had not been such a hothead or whatever. And then going through this process of maturation to the end where they're in a similar situation and they make a different choice. You know, they hold back. That that action is what's important. And many writers, especially memoirists, tend to be a bit more maybe preachy and telling you what they want you to believe about them or or why their behavior in a certain situation was reasonable and don't judge me for this because it was a really hard situation. It's like, "Hey, listen. We all do bad things." Just let the reader see what happened in the moment, how you reacted then. The point is, if you have a story that's worth writing about, you are going to walk them through the change, the arc of your story. So that was the other thing is that screenwriting is more commercially oriented films are most often based on the hero's journey. So that was the other thing is recognizing that, oh, you know what? Most 
most stories that we come across are heroes' journeys, and memoirs are heroes' journeys. So using that language of the hero's journey also has been really valuable to say, hey, listen, even in memoir, you're the protagonist here. You are walking through a hero's journey. And this is what a hero's journey is. And and let's look for points in your life that can can match some of these things. In a memoir, it's not all perfect. Like in, you know, hero's journey, you can really manipulate things along the way. So that's where it's really fun with memoir and challenging to be like, okay, this is the basic thing. How are we going to take what's happened for you and stack it in a way that we demonstrate this arc and do it in a way to keep the reader engaged all the way through? So is your story big enough for a book is one of the questions as well with memoir. Do you have any tips then for creating dialogue? Because so many of our writers don't write believable dialogue and it's it's either too formal, it's too long, or they say things and you don't know how they're saying things. So you don't really know, you can't really draw any conclusions about how they're feeling about something, right? Or how they're acting. So do you have any tips for dialogue? Dialogue is tough. Some people are good at it. And most people aren't that good at it. So I strive for the middle ground and that is just don't write bad dialogue. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you know, a lot can be forgiven. You can make up for not being a great dialogue writer if the rest of it is okay. So one is that the author is using the characters more like their sock puppets for what the author wants the reader to take away from that scene, right? So they're really talking at the reader through the characters. And that is immediately pulls the reader out of the story and is a really negative thing because it just creates friction. And then you feel like you're being preached at or, or spoken to as if you're too dumb to understand what's going on. The other thing is that we hear the writing advice that dialogue can be used to give exposition to the reader. And I, I agree with that. But there's a misunderstanding often between the difference of exposition and backstory. So often, writers are using dialogue to provide backstory. They're labeling that as exposition, but it's backstory. So the difference is exposition is something that the reader needs to know to understand a character or what's happening in that scene. And exposition can come at any time. You can, you can fill in exposition, tuck it in somewhere earlier, so that once we get to a scene where there's this dialogue, the reader's already going to have that information so that they understand what's happening with the dialogue. And the best way that I can describe backstory is if, if we think about our interactions with just everyday humans, and we meet somebody. I don't need to tell you guys that, you know, I was born in 1973 in Tampa, Florida, and my parents are their names and all of that, right? That's backstory. You don't care about that because we met at a specific time and place, and we're engaging for a specific purpose. Now, later, as relationships evolve, and as things come up that, that might be relevant, some of our backstories will get filled in, but it will be in the context of that 
communication, right? So all a reader needs to know is who the people in a scene are at that time and place. And as the story unfolds, they will either learn explicitly some details about the backstory, if it's important, or they will just generally get the vibe of that character and have some kind of a sense of what might have happened in their past. For example, you know, I'm sure that you guys have talked to people at different points in your life. We all do. We come across people and in in our interactions with them and different things, we're just like, wow, I think that person went through some kind of a very bad experience where they're really wounded and they don't trust people, right? That's just a vibe we get. And that's okay. Readers can just get a vibe of a character. They don't necessarily need to know everything that happened in the past or when it's appropriate and they do need to know because it has something to do with moving the story forward or the plot forward, then that's the time to reveal that. So what I hear you saying is don't be overwhelmed with creating lots of, quote, backstory that much of it is done on the fly in the scenes as it is needed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's a good way for novelists to do it. I think for memoirists, what I would say is take a step back and just remember what is your motivation in this story that you're trying to tell? You know, what's your goal and why is that important to you? And then also say, And what is it about what has happened to you in the past and your personality, your all of those things that make you a whole person? What is it about all of that stuff that is keeping you from the thing that you want? That's the only backstory that you really need to consider. And you don't necessarily need to give all of that away. And you certainly don't need to give it all away up front because that's where you're front loading the story. And then the pacing is all off because readers are, we're just like, yeah, but why am I here? Tell me why this matters to me, you know? We interviewed somebody recently who, and I don't know if she said this half jokingly or not, but she said, you shouldn't have any, if you have any backstory in your opening chapter, you should get rid of it because because that's the point where you really want to engage the reader. You don't want to slow them down. Do you have any kind of response to that or any similar advice? 100% agree. And, and I, that's the difference also. So that's where there should be no backstory in your book. It should all be exposition because something moves from backstory to exposition as soon as it becomes relevant. So if you can look at a scene and any information that you give in a scene, whether it's memoir or a novel, that could be removed without changing anything in the scene, either backstory or just irrelevant content, get rid of it. If there's a gap and you go, oh, wait a second, the reader needs to know this about the character for that dialogue to make sense, or they need to know this dynamic about that relationship for this dialogue to make sense. Ah, that's exposition. Then the follow-up question is, Should I put that exposition here in this scene in the moment, or should I find a place back further back in the story to tuck that in so that when I get to this scene, I don't have to do kind of a sidebar and go, by the way, reader, this, this, and this. So that's where there's some, the revision process of a book is really important. 
in the beginning, go ahead and stick it in the scene. You know, if you remember it at that moment and later you can go back and take it and, and move it to another part. Kristen, what you're saying is so interesting to me because I you're talking about authors needing to slow down and ask what what's missing that the reader needs in this moment or what is too much. But I don't think a lot of beginning writers have, I don't know if it's the skill or the understanding of how to do that. Do you have any tips for how to be always aware of kind of the reader and what might be missing to make make sense for the reader? My advice on this has shifted a little bit because I, I like to be prepared and think about things as we go. But especially with memoir, what I'm seeing is authors who have kind of a failure to launch. They're so worried in the moment about getting everything right as they go that they're actually not finishing their books or they get paralyzed at a certain point. That's the other thing. The Dunning-Kruger effect. That people who don't know a lot about something are really confident. And the more you know about something, the less confident you are. So you can definitely see this in a writer's journey, right? There often comes a point if you engage with writers in the middle of their books where they start out with a lot of enthusiasm. And then once they start exploring writing and hearing all these different things, the danger is that then they realize, they suddenly realize, oh my gosh, this is actually a craft that takes years and years and years to get good at. And I don't know what I'm doing here. So there can be this analysis paralysis, this imposter syndrome that happens. So I think let's pay as much attention as we can up front to that structuring, get you going with the basics. And then just write the book. Try not to analyze what you are writing in the moment because the revision process is actually, like for me, the writing process is not very fun. The planning is great and the revision process is fantastic, but the slogging through the writing is just not enjoyable. But the revision process, when you go back and you read everything and you go, oh, oh now I see it. Because I can, I'm a big picture thinker and I'm a holistic thinker, right? A systems thinker. Now I see how all the pieces fit together. Now I can identify where the gaps are and where the extraneous information is. And I can easily pull it out and rearrange things. So it's kind of that forest for the trees things. Sometimes you're just not going to be able to recognize in the moment, even as a professional writer, I go back and look at things and I go, oh, yeah, I don't need that. Or there's a big gap there. So just understanding that professional writers don't just bang out a first draft and everything is perfect all along the way. Revisions are part of the process. And if something is slowing you down, I think in some ways, if you're, if you're going through a period where you're stuck and you're going to outside sources for advice, figure out why and Sometimes you might actually just need to turn off new information and just say, I'm going to, I'm going to just write this all the way through without judgment and revise it myself on the back end, engage with the developmental editor on the back end, recognizing that there's no judgment. It's just to make it, to make it better. I have a provocative question for you. 
Can average writers write good books? I asked that question because I, I think a lot of writers have these overblown ideas about their writing and lots of writers are just pretty average, but can average writers write great books or even good books? I think it depends on the genre or the type of book. So I think that average writers can write high value nonfiction, like self-help and prescriptive nonfiction, because the reader is coming to that book, not to be entertained. They're coming because they are, they have a problem that they want to solve. So if the author is an expert and has a great system or lots of experience and they can describe it in a way that benefits the reader, the reader doesn't care so much about their syntax and all of that because they're judging the book not on the quality of the writing, but on the problem that it solved and how it did that for them. With memoir, novels, that kind of thing, it's what's your definition of a decent book kind of thing, because for people who read a lot, it's all subjective, right? I'm yes. tiptoeing around this. You are asking a provocative question. I like it. It's a great question. I, I guess it's just up to the judgment. Of the reader. Reader. Yeah, because truly for me, like when I read a book, I want the pacing to be good, but I want, I want a book that I want to underline sentences and be like, oh, well, that was just a delicious sentence, right? And I actually like it if I get pulled out of the writing because that sentence was just so well-structured. Or like, wow, they described this thing in a way that I never thought of. When I read Swamplandia, coming-of-age novel, I stopped reading at a point and put the book down for like 24 hours because there was this line where she was describing a building that had lights on in different places. And she... I think she described it as like a toothless grin, like a person with not all their teeth, like the way that the lights were on. And it was just like, wow, that is so clever and creative. I just wanted to live in that moment. So I put the book down. So to me, that's, that's good writing. But for somebody else, it might just be that they want a fast paced story and that's all they care about. So that's where it's like, find your audience and find what you're good at. And maximize your skill as a writer and what's important to you and see if it accomplishes your goal. And if it does, who am I to judge? In a legacy memoir, how do you make that interesting without making, let's say, the hero a really big hero, right? Everything is grand and everything worked out great. Let's say that I come from a high net worth family and I want to write a book about the story of the entrepreneurial journey that my family took over four generations. How would you approach that? Yeah. So to me, that might be something that was like, oh, well, that might be more of a commercially viable memoir because if that would be something that a lot of people would be interested in rather than somebody who, so this kind of goes to your motivation and who always it's one of the first things I ask is, okay, let, before we talk about anything is who's your ideal reader? Because then that's going to determine whether it's legacy or commercial, right? So if legacy is just like, hey, I just wanted to talk about my family's passage. They had an average story. There's nothing spectacular about my family other than it's my family and I care about it, right? So the only people who are going to be interested in this are going to be my 
potentially my children and my grandchildren, but don't tell anybody because I often tell people, listen, you think that your kids and your grandchildren are going to want to read this, but they probably won't. It really is about the audience. And so that's partly why I don't work on legacy is because I don't know what advice, I don't know what value I can bring to them. Because if you're doing it just for yourself, if it's some kind of a catharsis or you just want to honor your family or you want something to pass on to your children that's in writing, do it however the heck you want because your expectations are not that it's going to be commercially viable. But if you think that this is a story, that if if you want to share this story with many people because you feel like it's something that's going to be interesting to them and can be valuable to a wider swath of people, well, that's when you need to kind of step out of yourself and what you want and you think is important to say, I need to think of myself as a writer. And how do writers practice their craft? To me, it's all in service of the reader. And so there is a fine line because sometimes, you know, with literary fiction and certain books, there is a, hey, you're the artist. I'm not saying do something formulaic here. Create art here, right? So there is a bit, there is a bit of a rub there because sometimes creating art is not necessarily going to be commercially viable at the start. And I don't think that you should pander to an audience. I think that's where criticisms of things being formulaic and things like that are valid. At the same time, you know, you brought up Netflix things, right? I do not like watching police procedurals and all that because in my head, I can be like, in 37 seconds, this is going to happen. And then this person is going to do that. And then this person is going to do that. And then that person is going to do that. There's no fun for Kristen, the viewer there. But there's a huge audience for that kind of thing. So again, like this is art. It's subjective. You just have to figure out who your audience is and try to figure out where your overlap as an artist and what you want to do in the world, where that overlaps with an interested audience who's looking for what you have and whatever happens in that little overlap in your little Venn diagram, that's the sweet spot. And sometimes it's just, it's as good as a guess. So there was one question that we didn't get to, and I want to make sure that we, we touch on it. And I think you already have been talking around that, but you talk about how writers often don't know the difference between situation and story. Can you define the difference between those two? And how does a memoir switch their book so it's that it's story-driven and not situational? So the best way I, I describe it is that the situation is something that's external and the story is something that's internal that you're going through. So if we think about a situation, to me, also, a situation is relatively neutral, whereas the story is where all of the emotion and the impact is. An example would be, not that you would necessarily write a memoir about this, but you're working and a new supervisor comes in. All right. That's a situation. It's just a thing that happens, right? You don't really have control over that. So one person in that situation can see that as an opportunity. Another person in that situation can see that as some kind of a challenge. 
So that, that's where you have to look at the characters and say, okay, this is the situation. The situation is neutral. But the story is, ah, how does this person who sees it as an opportunity, why do they see it as an opportunity? What's their goal? How are they going to seize on this opportunity to move themselves from where they were under the old supervisor to wherever they see themselves, the potential of where they could be in this new situation with this new supervisor? Or the person who's struggling, ah, well, why did this disrupt their plans or why is this such a big deal for them? How are they going to behave? What are they going to do to try to mitigate whatever risk that brought into their life or whatever they need to do to overcome that situation? So I think if we look at it and kind of parse out what's just the external thing that could have happened to anybody and the unique journey that this character, if, if I'm writing a memoir, that I went on through this, that's going to be relatable, but also unique to me. There probably is this tendency for all of us when we are writing memoir to be too heroic and not to be vulnerable. How do you get over that? What you first said about not wanting to put down legacy memoir, I think the problem is when legacy memoir is positioned as commercial memoir, that's where the, the disconnect comes because the reader is going into it thinking that it's going to be what they expect, that they're going to get something out of it. And then it just turns out to be a diatribe by the writer or just a family history that the, the reader doesn't didn't ask for. And so the, it's that the reader's expectations were off from the manuscript. And that's why it's like, be very clear upfront whether you want to write a legacy memoir or a commercial memoir. If it's legacy, maybe just publish it as a book for your family. As soon as you put it up for sale, you're opening yourself up to criticism and you need to be careful and position it correctly to any potential readers that come across it. Because if you potentially, or if you position it as something that's going to be, have some universal thing and that they're going to get something out of it, and then they don't, they will eviscerate you in reviews. And it's nobody's fault necessarily. It's just a disconnect of expectations. Thing about being vulnerable. So it's a really tricky situation. And so sometimes I think it's only on the back end again that we can go back and look at it and say, oh, okay, here you're not being vulnerable and you need to give us more of who you are. Or here you're being really judgmental and preachy. And you know, then we start to parse it out. And often memoirs get completely rewritten because the first draft is the catharsis. And then the professional comes in and goes, okay, I don't think you meant to come across this way. And it might not be how you feel now. But when I was reading this, this was my takeaway. Is that what you really intended? And I've, I've had clients go, oh my gosh, now that you point that out, I see it. I have to completely go back to the drawing board. You're right. I was so angry when I wrote this that I just spewed. And now that you've pointed that out, I can see the nuance of my feelings. And then they go back and rewrite it. And it's something that the reader can see that pain. And that's where I think, Dave, the question about that's where you see the vulnerability is there. But if, if there's a lot of anger in something or a lot of fear in the writing, then it's never going to be a good memoir because it's not, 
it may have the the veneer of vulnerability, but if you you read into it, you know, readers are smart. We pick up on a lot of subtext and we can pick up on motivation. So I think the best answer is that a lot of that happens in revisions and it takes an objective or more objective person (laughs) to help point those things out. You've given us so much wisdom again today. You are just the best and we are so grateful for the time and just your wisdom on all these topics. I absolutely am confident that people are going to go away and be able to apply at least one thing from this podcast episode. So thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me back. I had such a great time the first time and thank you for having me on in the first place. All right, Dave, let's do our words of the episode. How about you go first? Okay, mine is modus vivendi. Modus vivendi. Now that is, or it is a Latin phrase and it literally means or is rendered manner of living. But I think what it is in reference to is this kind of arrangement or agreement when you have two parties that are disagreeing that allows them to coexist peacefully. So either for kind of a period of time or until some settlement is reached. So for example, I could imagine a couple who is separated, very angry with each other, but they, they come to some agreement about who, how they're going to see the kids and who gets them on which weekend before there's a final agreement. So it's a modus vivendi. The modus vivendi is that they get them every other, they get the child or each parent gets the child every other weekend until the settlement, final divorce settlement is decreed. So modus vivendi, I thought it was a nice word. So you hear about MO, right? Modus operandi, which is the mode of operating, right? The manner of operating. So modus vivendi, that makes sense. Vive. Manner of living, right. But there's that, there's that, actual meaning of coexisting peacefully that I like. That's a very nuanced definition. How about you? All right. Mine is nudnik, nudnik, nudnik. And I've heard this word before, but I don't think I ever really looked up the definition. You ca- it kind of has a negative connotation, just the way it sounds, right? It's the, one of those words that is just great where the denotative and connotation Denotation connotation matchup. So a person who is a bore or a nuisance is a nudnik. And the suffix nix simply means one connected with or characterized by being. So you you hear like people put nick at the end of like a type of person, right? So I guess I could be an antique nick and you could be a fish nick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Those two words round out our episode. I was so grateful to have Kristen on with us again. So helpful. I learned a lot. I know our audience will learn a lot. So with that, I guess we'll sign out. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.